Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13 and continuing to verse 27. This is God's Word. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said. But him, they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father, we come now into your presence, having heard your word proclaimed, heard these beautiful words from your gospel writer, Luke, recounting an encounter of you, Lord Jesus, meeting with two beleaguered, questioning, confused, sad disciples. Lord, there's more than just a two, of, two of us in that situation this morning here in this room. It's more than just two of us who have questions and sadness and grief and concern that crop up in our lives. And some of those griefs and concerns and questions come directly from the fact that we've not experienced life the way we thought we would. And to be quite honest, there are things that we've expected of you that haven't turned out like we thought they would. And so we need Jesus to show up. 
We need him to come and to open up to us the word from the law and the prophets. To come by us, weary pilgrims and travelers along the way, and remind us yet again that he is the very center of all that you've revealed. And that when we can see him, we can really see So I would ask you this day to let the scales fall from our eyes and let us behold Jesus in your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was a few years ago now sitting in a large auditorium at Mississippi College in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, listening to one of, well, one of my favorite writers, literary critics, speakers, who's still alive, Ralph Wood. Some of you will know who Ralph Wood is, professor of theology and literature at Baylor University. He was giving a couple of lectures there at Mississippi College on two of my favorite writers, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, uh, two writers that he had done a tremendous amount of work on. I remember the lecture like it was yesterday. He opened it by describing how thankful he was to be back in the great state of Mississippi. He'd been looking forward to coming to Mississippi. It's always a great thing for someone who loves literature to come back to Mississippi, and he at one point was there, now obviously living in Texas. He says, because Mississippi is really an enigma when it comes to literature, when it comes to writers. He says, because when you look at all of the statistics, it's very clear that Mississippi always ranks among the lowest of literacy rates in all of the U.S., He says, but the funny thing about Mississippi is it always ranks among the highest of greatest literature that comes out of any state in our union. He says, right beside this this dismal, this very dismal statistic of, you know, these large percentages of students who are illiterate, there is this great literary history. And he began to recount authors like William Faulkner and, and Walker Percy and Eudora Welty. Even John Grisham, as a modern-day writer, and about the time that he was actually speaking, our very own Catherine Stockett was in the midst of getting her book published known as The Help. Some of you will be familiar with that novel today. Would surmise the reason that Mississippi both struggled with literacy and also had this tremendous literary history was the fact that it wasn't a particularly educated culture, but it was a storytelling culture. It wasn't a particularly educated culture, but it was a storytelling culture. And as one who was raised within that storytelling culture, that is for sure the case. Our family reunions, our community events were were seasoned with wild yarns and tales. There's no doubt about it. Who knows if they were true, but we told them nonetheless. And among those stories were always great turns of phrases. Um, 
sayings that would just roll off the tongue of various Mississippians to describe certain realities in the world. I remember my dad used to always say, you know, son, we are as lost as a ball in high grass right now. My uncle used to regularly say, boy, we have been chewed up and spit out. My grandmother would regularly say, we are about as low as a snake's belly in a wagon wheel rut. That's pretty low. I think we've been rode hard and put up wet, if you ask me. Or as my aunt used to say, it still makes me laugh, at the end of Thanksgiving dinner, we're about as full as a ticker bug. Now, as I think about this particular passage, and I think about sayings like that, and stories, and, and how it is we try to capture the experience of life, I can't help but remember one of those sayings, and it's a saying that's very widely known, it's not just a southern saying, it's a saying that many of you in this room have probably used. The saying is this, I can't see the forest for the trees. I can't see the forest for the trees. Now, of course, it's an ironic statement, isn't it? Because the forest is the trees. That's what makes it such a great statement, is you've got to actually ponder what in the world does this mean? And of course, you pick this up as you go along and you realize that what it means is that we have a tendency to get lost among the particulars, among the details. When we're among the trees, we have a hard time finding our way, and we lose sight, as it were, of the big picture. We're in and amidst the forest, but we've forgotten the forest because we've gotten lost among the trees. Now, I actually think that that saying is a perfect example of what's going on here in Luke chapter 24. And I actually want to look at this passage under the two sides of that saying. I want you to see first that we have lost travelers among the trees here in Luke chapter 24. And then we are introduced to a travel guide who gives us a map of the forest. And so we have, we have travelers who are lost among the trees, but then we have a travel guide who comes to their rescue and he gives them a map of the forest. Well, let's look at these travelers who are lost among the trees here. Luke tells us there's two of them. They're journeying from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's just a seven-mile journey, probably a half-day journey. One of the travelers, as you can see in verse 18, is actually named for us. His name is Cleopas. And the other traveler, at least as far as Luke's account goes, and he's the one who gives us the full account of this particular post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, this other traveler is unnamed. Now, scholars believe it's possible that the Cleopas here in Luke chapter 24 is the Clopas of John chapter 19, verse 25. You might just make that reference as a note if you're taking notes this morning. In, in John chapter 19, verse 25, we have a Clopas who is before Jesus on the cross. And we're told that this Clopas is a blood relative of Jesus. It's possible that Clopas and Cleopas are two different ways of actually spelling the very same name. In the John 19 passage, this Cleopas or this Clopas is described as someone who is married to, mother, to Mary's sister. 
Which means that if this is the clopus of John 19, that we're, we're looking at someone who's a blood relative of Jesus here in this passage. Actually, one of Jesus' uncles. And it wouldn't go very far to, to be able to stretch things to say he's probably traveling with his wife back from Jerusalem after being there during the Passover with obviously great anticipations of what Jesus might do while they were there. And it's quite possible that this is Mary's sister who's walking alongside Clopas. Now regardless if this is true or not, the blood relation of, of these two disciples, if this is indeed correct, is not the focus of this passage. They don't describe Jesus as their nephew. The focus of this passage is their spiritual relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the focus. Look at how they describe him in verse 19. He was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. They were absolutely certain as to who Jesus was with regards to his prophetic quality. And indeed, that was an appropriate and accurate way of understanding the Lord Jesus. Theologians regularly refer to Jesus as fulfilling the offices of the Old Testament. And the threefold office of the Old Testament is often described as of a prophet, a priest, and a king. And in various ways, the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills those three offices. To describe him as a prophet is to say something correct about Jesus. But to describe Jesus as merely a prophet is to not see everything about Jesus. It's to see something accurately about Jesus, but it's also to be obscuring to the fuller picture of who he is. In fact, they, they stumble upon it in verse 21 of our text. With somewhat of a sad and grieving tone, they tell us that they had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was more than a prophet. We had hoped that he wouldn't just be mighty in word and deed. We had hoped that he would be the one who would rescue his people Israel. In other words, we had begun to believe that he was the Messiah. That he was the anointed one. But now, it seems as if they don't believe that. It seems as if their, their faith that he would be the one to redeem Israel is, is gone. They, they say it in the past tense. We had hoped. It's something that once was, and now we're still in the throes of grief and sadness and discouragement over the fact that he's not who we thought he was. Now, we can hardly blame them for drawing this conclusion. I mean, once they saw Jesus arrested and, and later executed, what were they supposed to think? I don't know how many redeemers you've seen who get arrested and die and still do redeeming. Well, not, not very many. Uh, yea, None. Up until maybe this point. And so it's late afternoon. The same day as the resurrection. They've had this report given to them about women who had, who had gone to the tomb. And Jesus' body not been there. And the angels said that he was alive again. But it doesn't seem like that's really encouraged them. It doesn't seem that their, their hopes have been lifted by this. And In fact, it seems like, well, we better get on back to Emmaus. You know, it's going to be Monday tomorrow. And, and we've got to get back to work. We've got all this... All this to, to do, all this busyness that's before us. We better get on back to real life. Things didn't turn out the way that we thought that they would. This is the spirit of those who are traveling who are lost among the trees. They're sad. They're dejected. They're confused. They're questioning. And because their hopes are dashed, 
They're sent back reeling, but they're going back. They're going back to the life that they've always known, and nothing now has changed. They're just a little bit more discouraged. And it's at that moment that Jesus shows up. It's at that moment that the Lord Jesus Christ comes to them. Now, I love this about Luke 24. It's a simple observation about the text. That as they are, in a sense, reversing their own hopes, they had hoped as they were going to Jerusalem that something amazing was going to happen. The Redeemer of Israel was going to come clear. But now as they're going back to Emmaus, their hopes are now back towards getting back to work and getting back on to life. And it's at this particular point that Jesus shows up. He comes back to them and he reveals something about the very character and the nature of God here. He reveals that he loves us. That he loves those who are lost among the trees. He loves those who are confused. He, he loves those and he comes to those who need him in their moment of greatest need. Maybe even Christ this morning is doing that for you. As we look at this text, as we open up God's word uh, together this morning, do you, maybe it's you who come in here with this sadness, with the hopes dashed, with your life dejected. Maybe it's not turned out the way you thought it was going to turn out. Maybe God hasn't come through for you in the way that you thought he was going to come through for you. Maybe you had conceived that Christ would would unfold a life for you that's very different than the one that you're living today. And, and it, could it be possible that, that, that Jesus this morning, by his word, very faithfully is saddling up alongside you as you make your pilgrim journey? And he says, I want you to know that I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you by my word. I see your sadness. I see your broken heart. I see your dashed hopes. And I'm coming up alongside you and I'm engaging your heart with questions. Isn't that exactly what Jesus does here in this passage? He, he, doesn't, he doesn't come in and immediately start in on a, on a sermon. In fact, we're, we're told that as he comes, they're kept from recognizing him. As he comes up beside him, they, they don't even behold who it is that Jesus is. And the sense of the text here is not that they didn't have the perceptions with regards to recognizing his physical appearance. It is a spiritual blindness that's being described here. They were kept from it. There was a block that kept them from being able to see who Jesus is. And, and the realization is that's, that's often how we experience our walk with Christ in the midst of our sadness. Is that right now, even when we're in the midst of dashed hopes and sadness, it often feels like God is a million miles away. But we often describe it as we've cried out to him, we've questioned, and we've wondered, and we're in the midst of our sadness and sorrow. Won't you come to me, Lord Jesus? Won't you answer me? Won't you give me clarity? And it's our tendency to think that he's not there. When in reality, we may not be able to see him, but he is always seeing us. We may not be aware that he's walking with us. His presence may not be something that we are clearly perceiving, but I can assure you, your presence is something he's clearly perceiving. 
What's more important and primary in this text is not that we in this moment behold Jesus, but that Jesus beholds us. As we're walking on the road of the pilgrimage of this particular life. Do you see, this is a symbol of God's love for us. And because He loves us, He is dead set on surprising us. He's dead set on surprising us. Now, listen, if you're not much up for surprises, you're not going to like God all that much. Um, You're going to find Him very difficult to deal with because He must love surprises. I'm not going out on a limb to describe that. If you go over the history of redemption in the Bible and if you go over the twists and the turns of your life, what you will find is what you think is going to happen almost never happens the way you think it's going to happen. And and just when you don't expect to meet Jesus, he all of a sudden shows up. In the moment where you think he's dead and everything is hopeless, he begins to walk with you on the side of the road and you can't even see him. There's almost a humor in this. This is is almost a kind of surprise party. Jesus and the cosmos is in on the fact that an entire resurrection and reverse of the curse has taken place and you are dragging your head thinking everybody's forgot about your birthday. As you walk into that gym and the lights cut on and everybody says, happy birthday. It's that kind of a moment. It's that kind of surprise as Jesus is walking beside them. But notice, they're not at that surprise yet. For a long time, he walks with them and questions them and hears their heart and and draws out of them questions and how they're feeling and what they're thinking. And, And for a long time, he paces that seven miles with them. And he's listening, but he's there. He's listening and he's there. And what this means is that no matter where you are this morning, no matter how distant Jesus and God may feel to you, don't give up on them. They're with you. In fact, the fact that you're here this morning with the Word of God opened and can even be within the earshot of this voice under the presence of the power of the Holy Spirit is the presence of God with you today. The presence of God with you today. And let me tell you, the silence of God is what builds towards the surprise of God. It's really the way it works. It's often the silence of God that builds towards the surprise of God. Because you know what God is often doing within our hearts in the moments of His silence? He's he's letting the, the, the narrative play out of our lives a little bit. And He's often, because He loves us and is so kind to us, He's getting us to a place where we can really hear him and really see him. Now, what kind of place is that usually for us? Well, you know what kind of place this is. You know how deaf and and dumb we often are when we're walking in the Christian life thinking that we've got it together and things are going well and you hear a message or someone speaks a word to you and it's in one ear and it's out the other. But the moment that you fall into despair, the moment that you lose your hope, The the moment where you're in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of sadness, and the moment you begin groping and longing to hear from a word from God, you know what begins to happen? In his silence, he's building the anticipation of when he'll surprise you with his word. He'll begin to appear before you. You see, it's when we're pinned between despair and desperateness that we grow ears to hear. 
We grow ears to hear. When we're pinned between despair and desperateness, we grow ears to hear. And it's when God loves to come and meet his disciples. It's not in his, it's not in his malevolence that he's silenced. It's in his kindness that he's silenced because he's building you for a surprise. And he's going to show you something that you could scarcely believe. It's important for us to see this in this text. That as they're walking among the trees, lost in themselves, Jesus is walking incognito with them. And he's preparing to surprise them with his grace. Well, in the first place, we have these travelers who are lost among the trees, but we have this travel guide, don't we? Who presents to these two disciples a map of the forest. And I want you to see how he, how he does this. After these two disciples spill out their confusion and their souls to Jesus, not even knowing that it was Jesus who was before him, Jesus begins to launch into the best Bible study ever given on the face of the earth. You can read about it there in the end, verse 25 to verse 27. Listen to what he says here. He says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And there's so much I want to say about this little section of Scripture because this little verse of Scripture is probably the most important verse for biblical theology in the Bible. To understand how it is that we are to read the Bible and to understand the importance of the Scriptures and what it means for Christ to be revealed in them, you'd be hard-pressed to find any other passage in all of the Bible that that's important. So, because I don't want to feel the pressure of having to get it all in, we're going to look at it again next week, okay? And we'll get to the end of this section. We'll come back to this verse, but then go to the end of verse 35. But I want to make some observations this morning, and I, and I hope in the beauty of this, of this time that we'll see Christ together. And the first thing I want you to see is Jesus has saddled up next to these two confused, beleaguered travelers who are lost among the trees. He, as the travel guide that they can't even recognize, begins to unfold for them the map of the forest. So they can understand, they can make heads or tails, they can put the pieces together of all the things that have been so confusing to them. And here's the first observation I want you to see in this text. I want you to see that Jesus uses the Bible to reveal himself. That's just a simple observation, but it's profound. Jesus uses the Bible to reveal himself. Now this is quite remarkable because let's, let's remember, he's there in person. It's there in front. It would seem as if maybe the way in which he could convince them of the work of God going on in the world would be to say, Hey, look at here. Here I am. You thought I was dead. I'm not. Look, see, behold, it's me. That would seem like the path of least resistance. That would seem like the way in which we would go, Oh, yeah, there must be something to this thing because Jesus has come back from the dead. But that's not what Jesus does. What's remarkable here is that Jesus chooses a better way. He chooses the way of opening up to them the Scriptures. And what this teaches us is a very clear implication. If we are to know the Lord Jesus, then we must know our Bibles. 
We must know our Bibles. Let, let me just put it in, in this way so that maybe it can hit home to you, especially if you're here this morning and you're thinking, I don't sense that I know Christ. And in the back of your mind, you think, I don't really read my Bible. If that's you here this morning, what Jesus is saying is, when I disciple two disciples who are confused, what Jesus uses is the Bible. Is that clear? It's pretty clear. What Jesus decides to use as his leading discipling text is not even the revelation of himself in the flesh. It's the Holy Word of God. It's amazing. It's a profound observation and implication that comes from this text, which really does begin to spur within us, I pray, a reflection about, if I'm going to know Jesus, I've got to know my Bible. Because Jesus' leading way of communicating himself to others is through the scriptures. And so I want to encourage you and just challenge you from this text. This text is saying, pour over, study, meditate, hide it in your heart, the words of scripture, for in them you meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, you meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there could be much more said observation-wise about that, but that should be profound. That should be really profound because Jesus here could just Simply drop the scales from their eyes and say, look here, it's me. And instead, he says, I want you to see me in the Bible. Now, from that observation, I think there are are three applications as we conclude this morning that need to be at the forefront of our minds as we consider this text. And and, and the the first is, is this, we must learn how to read the Bible. We must learn how to read the Bible. Now, I want you to to hear, I've already challenged you to read the Bible, but I'm not just challenging you to read the Bible. I'm challenging you from this text to learn how to read the Bible. These travelers were committed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had even rightly identified Jesus' prophetic ministry in word and deed before God and man. They had even gotten an indication that he was the Messiah and were beginning, no doubt from the words of the prophets, to begin to put some pieces together. But Jesus still says to them, you are foolish and slow of heart. These are those who would have been going to the temple. Those who would have been worshiping in synagogue. These are those who would have, who would have been knowing the scrolls and what was taught within them. And yet, they still didn't have the pieces together. There was still an incredible amount of confusion regarding what the Bible teaches. Now, stop there. Isn't that encouraging? How many times have you read the Bible and been totally confused by the Bible? In fact, it's a little sad, isn't it? A second ago, when I was going through the process of encouraging you to read the Bible, and you're going, yeah, I need to read the Bible, but you know what's going to happen. I'm going to read the Bible, and then I'm going to get totally confused by the Bible, and then I'm going to give up on reading the Bible. I know that's going to happen. Jesus, I think, knows that's going to happen, unless you know how to read the Bible. How do you begin to understand the Bible, because it's an incredibly difficult book. Peter actually says this of Paul's own letters. He says, you know what, when I read Paul's letters, there's some things that are really hard to understand in Paul's letters. And you think, well, you could have said Ezekiel too. You know, you could, you could, have, said, you could have said Deuteronomy as well. There are many things in the Bible that are incredibly difficult. And here's the one thing I want you to see. I want you to see that reading the Bible is not just a 21st century problem. The understanding of the Bible and the the collective pieces of the Bible and putting them together in a way that we can see the forest and understand the map has been a difficulty 
throughout the scriptures. One of the encouraging passages is in the book of Acts when the Ethiopian eunuch is reading from the prophet Isaiah. We read the prophet Isaiah earlier in our text this morning. And, and here, here it comes, um, the disciple, the apostle Paul, and he comes to this Ethiopian eunuch and he says to him, do you understand what you read? And he goes, how can I understand what I read unless somebody tells me what it means? And we think, amen, amen, tell me what it means. What's he saying? He's saying, you've got to help me understand what the Bible's saying. Now, this brings in a couple of things. It means we've got to understand, we've got to understand how to read the Bible. But in addition to that, we're going to need teachers to help us understand the Bible. Jesus actually in this passage doesn't just go, you know what? Go read the prophets and then come back to me. That's not what he does. He says, let me unfold the prophets for you. There is, there is this beautiful trinity of discipleship that's happening with the disciples who are seeking to follow Christ, the word of God's authority present with them, and Jesus unfolding it and teaching it to them. That dynamic of teaching the community of faith, the Bible, underneath the authority of God, reliant upon the Holy Spirit to open up our eyes to behold it, is a powerful means through which God grows us up into the image of Christ and by which we can see the horizon and take in the forest of redemption, the glorious thing that's there. So, so here's what I want you to see. We've got to, we've got to know how to read the Bible because as Jesus approached them, he says, don't you know that he must suffer, the Messiah must suffer first before he enters into his glory? And they might have gone, uh, uh, I know. Um, well, let's go look at the prophets and let me show you. And so it begins at a note of humility. In fact, this way of faith is part of what God is desires to do. Some of us think, oh, I wish God had made it so much more clearer. We, we wished that we could just read it on our own and not have to rely upon anyone else and become professional Bible experts without relying upon anyone else. And yet, you know, part of God's wisdom is this. He's going to give you a book that is clear but has depth, which in so, so many ways will humble you so that you'll have to rely upon others. And you'll have to rely upon the Spirit to understand because He's really interested in conditioning you into the humility of faith and making you into the image of Christ. And so He begins by us admitting we don't know often how to read the Bible. And so Jesus says, I want to teach you. I want to teach you how to read the Bible. And this is, this is application number two. It's this. Learning how to read the Bible means approaching the Bible with Jesus as the interpretive center of the Bible. Learning how to read the Bible means approaching the Bible with Jesus as the interpretive center of the Bible. Now, what in the world does this mean? Well, look at what Jesus says. Verse 26, using the law and the prophets, a summary statement of the Old Testament, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, when you hear all the scriptures, you have to realize there's no New Testament. So he's speaking about the law and the prophets, which is Moses and the writing of the prophets, all of the Old Testaments. Now, we would, we would love to hear what he said. I mean, if there was ever a Bible study that I wanted to be a part of, it was this one. I want to be on a fly of the wall on this particular Bible study. This is exegetical heaven right here. You have the Word made flesh unfolding the Word of God. I mean, how powerful must this Bible study be? In fact, we'll see some of the power from that Bible study next week together. Now, we don't know all that Jesus looked at, all the references, all the examples he gave, but we do know the principle that he used. 
We know the principle that he used. He interpreted all the scriptures concerning himself. He centered himself in the midst of the text. And he let himself be the interpretive key by which the mysteries of the scripture were unlocked. And that principle is what I want to encourage you in this morning. Listen to what John Calvin said. We should seek in the whole of Scripture truly to know Jesus Christ and His infinite riches that are comprised of Him that are offered to us by God the Father. If one were to sift thoroughly the law and the prophets of the Old Testament, we would not find a single word mentioned which would not draw us to Jesus. Now, I want that to be a a functional belief structure in your life as you approach the Bible. When you're reading in the book of Leviticus, you're reading in 1 and 2 Samuel, when you're buried in the prophet Jeremiah and you are becoming lost, you're beginning to think, how is Jesus present here? How is he the interpretive center of where it is I am in the midst of this text? So two questions I want to give you just by instruction. I want you to ask this question as you read the Bible. What does this passage say about the God who redeems? You you may not understand every single detail, every single geographical reference, every single metaphor. You may not understand every single name. You may not even know how to pronounce most of the names. But the, the thing that you can probably begin to distill and the purpose for which that word is given is to say something about the God who redeems, which means to lead you to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I want you to ask this question secondly. What does this passage say to me as one who needs to be redeemed? What does this passage first say about God who is doing the redeeming, which leads us to Christ? And then what does this passage say to me as one who needs to be redeemed? And what you'll begin to find is all of a sudden, in the midst of the confusion, there will become clarity. More and more light, more and more grace will begin to flood into your life. Now, I want to give you just a quick example before we go, because I think one of the leading Preachers, teachers of our days who does this incredibly well and who helps us significantly in this is Dr. Tim Keller. Many of you know him from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York and he leans heavily on another one of my heroes, Sinclair Ferguson, who helps a lot in helping us see Christ in all of the scripture. And I want to steal a fairly large section from one of his messages that he gave four or five years ago so that you can begin to see how Jesus is tied into every facet of the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, and then it can begin to come alive for you as you read it. So this is a quote, rather extensive, but I think it'll be encouraging to you as you hear the connections that are made. Listen for the centrality of Christ. Jesus is the true and better Adam. He is the one who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience has now been charged to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though he was innocently slain, his blood cries out not for acquittal, nor for our condemnation, but for our justice and acceptance before the Lord. Jesus is the true and better Abraham. He's the one who answered the call of God to leave his comfortable and familiar home and go into the void, not knowing where he would go to redeem for him a new people. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who is not just offered by his father, but is sacrificed by his father. And when he said to Abraham, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your only son from me. Now we can say to God, now I know that you love us because you did not withhold your only son from us. 
Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled with God and took the blow of justice that we deserved, only that we would receive grace by his wounds. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed him and sold him into slavery and uses his power to save them and provide for them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between his people and the Lord who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who was struck by God's justice and now gives us water as we walk in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the innocent sufferer who intercedes for his people and saves his friends. Jesus is the true and better David, the one whose victory becomes his people's victory even though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't risk just losing the palace, but lost his infinite heavenly home, who didn't just risk his life, but gave up his life so that he would save a people for his own possession. Jesus is the true and better Jonah. He was cast out into the storm and fell into the deeps so that we might be brought in. Jesus is the real Passover lamb. Jesus is the innocent, perfect, helpless one who was slain so that the death angel will never visit us again. Jesus is the true prophet. Jesus is the true priest. Jesus is the true king. He is the temple. He is our sacrifice. He is our lamb. He is our light. He is our bread. And it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. You see, as Jesus begins to be the very center of the biblical text and the reference point through which you read all things, you begin to see the glory of the redemption unfold. You begin to see that these trees are connected to a forest and we have the map in our hands through the Bible to lead us to an encounter with Christ. We have to believe that as Jesus began to open up the law of the prophets, that something of a few of the examples that I read a second ago crossed his lips. And what we find is these disciples, as they walk with Jesus, they become transformed on the spot. They move from confusion into clarity. They move from sorrow into excitement. They move from despair into hope. And as we lean into the Bible, and as Jesus becomes the interpretive center for how we read the Bible, what begins to happen is Jesus becomes the interpretive center for all of our lives. For all of our lives. All of a sudden we begin to look at nature different. All of a sudden we begin to look at our neighbors different. All of a sudden we're walking into our workplaces different. All of a sudden everything begins to take on the color of Christ. And we begin to see, as Gerald Manley Hopkins wrote in that glorious poem, we begin to see Christ at play in 10,000 places. It's our hope and it is our passion here at Cornerstone that you would see Jesus in his word. That you would be captured by the beauty of Jesus in his word. That you would live all of life by the glory of Jesus as presented in his word. And in so doing, we begin to see through the word of God, the glory of the word made flesh, who's coming again to redeem us fully and to make us his own. Great mysteries. Great joys. What a great God we have. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you don't leave us without a witness, but you give us. You give us the clarity of your word. And we thank you by your spirit that you have taught us from your word this morning. And that though we are, yes, indeed, foolish and slow of heart, you love foolish and slow of heart people because you love opening up your word to us and in your silence, building us towards a surprise 
and showing us by your grace exactly when we have the ears to hear and the eyes to see. So Lord, open up our lives even more as we continue in our worship of you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.